This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised. In the last episode, we talked about the Hogan family and what happened when someone dared to go against Jack. In today's episode, we're going to continue to discuss the monster that is Jack Walls, his relationship with Heath, and how he became Jack's finest creation. In a previous episode, we stated that Charles Peckett was the former Lone Oak County police chief. He was actually the Lone Oak City police chief. And this is an important correction to make, because the difference between the two will factor in in a future episode. We will be hearing from Kelly Cunningham, Charles Peckett, Betty Dickey, Heath's Aunt Bonnie. We will also be introducing Matt Carter, who is the chief public defender in Little Rock, Arkansas. It was super interesting to meet Mac. We showed up at the public defender's office, checked in the front desk with his assistant, Jessica. She walked us back to his office, and on the way, she was telling us just how much he was looking forward to chatting with us. It was so nice, too, because this is a very important subject and something that he had been involved in when it all happened. And we had been corresponding He wanted to do the interview. Some stuff came up that day with court, different things. And we were talking back and forth and text. And he said, I really want to do this interview. So it was just really nice to see. And we had talked about it with Charles Peckett and Betty Dickey that I think you mentioned before, too. That's a case that people carry around with them. And I think that that is also the same for Matt Carter. My name is Mac Carter. I'm the chief public defender of the 6th Judicial District. covers Pulaski and Perry counties here in Arkansas. I was uh, licensed to practice in 91. I uh, started out in private practice. I was uh, was wanting to be a deputy prosecutor for a while and then get into private practice, criminal defense law, and they didn't have an opening, and then... Uh, neither did Bill Simpson here at the public defender's office, so I was just on my own working with a lawyer in North Little Rock. And I, uh, Bill Simpson, I was in court one day before a particularly ornery judge, and apparently I diffused an argument, and Bill offered me a job, and wanted to know if I was still interested, and I said yes. So I've been here since, I guess that was in 92, and um, stayed here for about a year and a half, and then there was a newly formed capital conflicts and appellate office that exclusively handled death penalty cases throughout the state, and that was what I was wanting to get into. Prior to that, I, my first jury trial here in Little Rock was a first-degree murder case, which we don't do that anymore. We don't put young lawyers in, you know, straight ahead in, into those types of felonies, but. I did have that experience and went in and stayed there eight years and uh, associated with attorneys all over the state who weren't certified by the Public Defender Commission to represent people who were facing a uh, death penalty. And uh, that's how I associated with uh, the Lone Oak Public Defender on Heath Stock's case. And we talk about how welcoming Mac was, and I really feel like that was the case across the board with everybody that we've interviewed so far, including Kelly Cunningham. This was the first time she had given an interview on the subject, and she was Heath's college girlfriend. 
Not to mention who he spent the night with the night of the murders. I'm sure this whole thing has just been so traumatizing for her. And she could not have been kinder and more willing to open up to us and share her feelings and thoughts and what it was like to date Heath and when they met and their relationship. She talked about how nervous she was to give the interview, but she really gave such a great interview. She did. And the funny thing is, is we have asked people to take pictures with us after we have the interviews with them. And we realized we forgot to ask her. And so I had to call her and say, hey, how far away are you? She turned the car around, came back and took a picture with us. It was just really, really nice. So if you remember in episode three, we read Heath's statement to the police and he talked about how he was initiated into Jack's little club. When after the first sexual contact happened with Jack, he walked back in and the other boys said, welcome to the group. Which is sad to think about because that just really paints the picture of all of these other boys had also gone through that initiation into the group. They've all already been abused by Jack. So they already know what's happened to Heath. And now he's part of the group. And they knew before it happened. They knew what was going to happen. And that was the same thing with each new boy that came into the group. And in a lot of the statements, it the same thing rings true, that the boys would know when a new boy was there. They would kind of leave the campfire. Jack would isolate himself with the boy and it would happen, which is absolutely crazy if you think about it, because multiple boys knew what was going to happen. But they were all so conditioned by Jack that it was the norm. So in the first few episodes, we've talked about Heath's family, childhood, what Jack's M.O. was when he did all this to the boys. But let's kind of dive into Heath and Jack's dynamic. I think in the beginning, Heath's relationship with Jack was very similar to what we've read from all of the other boys with the alcohol and the porn and the different books. I think there's another layer to the dynamic between Jack and Heath versus what it was like with the other boys. Jack took a special liking to Heath. And at one point, he even started calling Heath his son. And Heath referred to Jack as his dad. And I think that really speaks to, like we talked about in the second episode, When we were talking about the family dynamic, how Heath was just missing so much in terms of that father-son relationship. And I really think that's what made him so vulnerable. So Jack saw what was going on at home. He saw that Heath was struggling with his dad. And he really took advantage of that situation because a lot of the other boys had issues with their family. And we mentioned multiple times before how he would befriend the family. And he met Heath and moved right on in. But I think what made it different with Heath and with the Stocks family is that Jack was really close with the Stocks family. They were friends. And so that flow of information was just very easy for Jack. So he could tell Heath one thing and then he could turn around and tell Joe and Barbara another thing. He messed with these boys to the point that they couldn't make proper decisions on their own. They had to use Jack as the person that they could turn to, to ask him questions about whatever would happen to come up. An example of that would be he stocks. He had trouble with his dad. He had to turn to Jack to find out what he could do about his dad. And he completely took advantage of that situation because he craved love. The home videos that we've watched 
Heath is walking around just wanting hugs from his family. He's walking around giving everybody hugs, his mom, aunt, sister. And you could just see how much he craved affection. And Jack saw that too. And so, like you said, he would play them against each other. And at one point, he even told Heath, I knew your dad in school. Your dad's a bully and you need to stand up to him. Well, now Heath stands up to his dad and it just makes things worse. Like we've talked about with Joe, everything was about staying in line and showing respect. So if Heath is going to stand up to Joe, I would imagine that Joe's going to take that as a sign of disrespect. And so that just continues that cycle of tension between Joe and Heath and furthering that crack between them. You know, he's like, you know, try to do what he tells you to do. I'm going to talk to him. And then him talk about my dad and my dad, him, him, you know, telling my dad, to, you know, go easy on me. So later on here that he was actually telling my dad that he needed to be more strict, that he needed to really discipline me. And of course, you know, that's all my dad needed to hear. You know, I mean, that's what he'd been trying to do all along. And that was, you know, that echoed his belief system that if he was just more, if he just did it to the right level or often enough that it would finally get me headed in the right direction. Another thing we talked about was how Jack would get the boys to open up and get them talking and confide in him what kind of problems they were having at home. And that's something that Heath was looking for. He was looking for that outlet. So the information was just flowing from Heath. And he was playing right into Jack's hand with without even knowing it. And Jack always knew exactly what to use to his advantage. So Heath is saying, I don't feel like my dad loves me or I'm not getting the love that I need from my dad. And Jack is there to give him that love and to be that father figure that he's looking for. And when Jack is telling Heath, I knew your dad in school, he was a bully, stand up to him, he knows exactly what kind of outcome that's going to have. Whereas Heath, being a young boy, thinks everybody goes to Jack for advice. He's the one that everyone looks up to. He was man of the year for crying out loud. So let's listen to what he says. And the whole time, it's just a ploy. He's playing right into Jack's hand as Jack then just affirms Heath's beliefs that his dad doesn't love him. Which eventually down the road he uses for his manipulation again by saying, you're right, your dad doesn't love you. I'm the only one who loves you. So it just builds that trust continually, that foundation. And as we go through this and talk about this and learn more about it, it's so blatantly obvious how much time Jack put into this. Years and years he would spend building the trust before he even did anything. So by the time he does something with these boys, when he meets them at eight or nine years old and then, then builds that relationship and then when he does do something with the boys, they already think he's God. So why would they question him? I consider a young man and uh, looking for something latching on to never had Gordon to Heath. I don't know what the relationship between him and his father was. A boy wants a father figure, a male in his life to look up to, and that's all he had, apparently. Jack Walls exploited that. He exploited that there was abuse, but and it doesn't have to be an abuse. You know, when you're a teenager, young, angry man, I mean, I've been there. You, Somebody else comes along and comforts you. 
It's like, yeah, he understands me. He molded Heath. I don't have any doubts about that whatsoever. Molded his mind into thinking that Jack knew best and what was, no matter what was going on, it was the right thing to do. And when you're that young, you might consider, well, this is what I should be doing. His abuse is love or whatever. I don't know however sick and twisted it can be, but yeah, the, the influence was there. Heath talks about additional ways that Jack would gain information so he would know what was going on with the boys at home with their families. And we mentioned before that Jack was related to the Knoxes. And so the Knoxes and the Walls hung out a lot because they were neighbors right next door and they were related and they were friends. So Karen was a first grade teacher and it's a small town. They're all hanging out. They talk about how things are going. She mentions different kids that might be struggling that she's having problems with. And Jack's right there with his ears perked up to see what other boys might be having problems at home, might be a troubled youth that he could bring into his fold. It sounds like just such a normal situation where you're sitting there with your friends or your family and talking to each other about your day and what's going on with work. And meanwhile, Jack is sitting there listening intently, gathering information about potential targets. And that's probably the last thing that Karen thought she had to worry about. Her brother-in-law, if you're telling these stories about things that happened to you during the day or things you're experiencing with your classes and it's your family, it's your relative sitting right there, last thing you would think was I should be cautious what I say in front of this man. I think that the way he chose was... You go back to Karen, she was the first grade school teacher. Well, you had Jack's wife, Pam. She'd go to church. Pam and Jack, they had daughters. So all their daughters were in groups. And so these moms would talk. And so Pam would come home and talk about so-and-so's having problems with her kids. Karen would be talking to Pam about boys she's having problems at school with. They're all part of these social clubs and communities. And so all these parents are talking to each other. They're talking about the problems they're having. And so Jack knows exactly, well, why don't you put them in the scouts? Let me help you help them. And then when he gets them out there, he can start to isolate, question, and develop a profile on each child and and, and then figure out, okay, well, do I think that, okay, well, I'm 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 going to get these guys over here invite them to a special camp out and let them get some cigars and look at some playboys. Another way that Jack had a lot of access to Heath was the fact that he would just feel very comfortable calling the house and asking for Heath or checking in to see if Heath was home. And Joe and Barbara didn't think anything about it. They would just say, oh, he'll be home later or yeah, he's home. I'll send him over whatever the case may be. So all of that just seemed very normal and didn't raise any red flags that this man was spending so much time with this boy because they thought that he was mentoring him. They actually liked that because they thought that Jack was helping him. The more Jack spent time with him, the better scout slash child Heath would be. And if Jack picked you to call and focus on, it was kind of like you were his chosen one. 
And on the flip side of that, we've talked about how Heath was having a hard time with his dad. But as parents, they felt like they were having a hard time with their son as well. They felt like he was acting out and they're not sure what was going on or what was wrong. So they saw Jack as somebody who was helping them, somebody who was giving them a lifeline to help their son. And Jack really took advantage of that and continued to wedge his way into the family even more. That trust was there. They didn't have to worry about anything. They thought things were getting better, but they were just continually getting worse. I think he was just a smooth talker. I think that that's what it is. There's people out there that can talk your ears off, and I think he was one of them. I think that he could. He was convincing, and he knew when somebody was having trouble with a particular child, and he would talk to the parents about whatever that problem was with that child. That just shouldn't have happened. I think that Heath was the biggest victim that Jack had. And if not, then Wade would have been. Those two would have been, it would have been close with those two. Like we talked about with the other boys, how all of this was their first experience with anything sexual. And they're being told by Jack that all of this is normal. So that's what they believe. Heath didn't think at the time that anything that was happening was wrong. And Heath would start to associate the sex acts with love because with that came the emotional, the confidence, the filling that void that he had been looking for, that that love that he had been craving for so long was filled. But it also came with the abuse. He said in several interviews that he associated love with sex. And that's how he thought that you showed love was through sexual acts. And you have all this love coming from Jack, or so we thought, but it was just sexual control. We had mentioned previously that Heath's mother had found what she believed to be blood and semen in his underwear. And she asked him about this. He wasn't forthcoming with what was going on when she did ask about it. She confided this to her mother, but nothing else was done about it. I had uh, mom questioned me about blood being in my underwear when I came home after I came out. I didn't find out until later on that my mom had actually complained to her brother about what she felt or thought that I had blood and semen in my underwear. My grandmother said that on a visit, she said that my mother was in a panic because she did not know what to do. She knew who was over the Boy Scouts. My grandmother said she was more concerned about what my dad would do to me than she was anything else. That if she told him what he would do to me. And the more we talk about the story and dig into things, I honestly think that she was just terrified of Joe and she knew that Jack was over the Boy Scouts. So whether or not she had an inkling at that time, I don't know. You mentioned how she was probably afraid of what Joe's reaction would be. He made it very clear how he felt about gay people, and she was already witnessing the beatings and abuse that Heath was enduring from Joe. And I'm sure she could have only imagined what Joe's reaction would have been like if he found something like that out. So she told her mother about it and no one else because her fear of Joe and what he might do. And we'll see those fears from Barbara come into play several times because I feel like there's a lot of instances where she hesitates on her intuition or her gut reaction out of fear of what Joe's reaction will be. One of the things that Heath had mentioned was the first time he saw a Playboy magazine. And he said that he was routinely called out of the Cub Scout group to visit with Jack. 
it was during one of these call-out times that he said that it was almost by chance that he saw a Playboy. Jack knew exactly what he was doing. Of course he did. He said that his heart was racing when he first saw it and he thumbed through it and looked at it. And as he did, there's Jack smiling and assuring him that his reaction was natural and it was expected. Nothing to be ashamed of at all. Just like we talked about in one of the other episodes, Jack is saying it's completely normal for your body to react like that. Let me show you what to do about it. I always go back to also they felt special. They knew that being one of Jack's chosen boys, it came with a lot of stuff that they didn't want to have to do. But with that also came what they needed and craved and that feeling of belonging that they all wanted. Having Jack also say, this is our little secret, nobody else knows about this, that also added to that sense of belonging and made them feel like they weren't so alone. That they had others that were like them going through the same thing. Almost a connection of sorts. And that's one thing as a mom that I always tell my kids that no adult should ever ask you to keep a secret. That's just not something that an adult should do. That is very solid advice because in no way, shape or form should any adult ever say, this is our little secret. Don't tell your parents. They'll get mad or. And that's just another thing that he used to control them. If your parents find out about this, they'll get mad. So don't tell them. So let's talk a little bit about that control that he had over them. Charles Peckett mentioned in episode three that the guns and the training and such was a way also to scare these young boys. So while Jack used the guns and the training and all you can shoot ammunition, it came across to the boys as I'm cool he believes in me. He trusts me. I'm much more responsible than my parents think I am. I'm special. But really, Jack was using it as a way to intimidate them and control them even more. During those outings, when Jack is showing them all of the things and the weapons that he has and blowing things up, they're probably thinking how cool it is. When you're a little kid, you always think about, I can't wait to grow up. I can't wait to do the things that I see adults doing. And so here they are handling these things that they mainly see adults doing. And they're thinking that they're having a great time. But down the road, when they're thinking about going against Jack, those events are replaying in their minds saying, he's got all these guns, he's got all these explosives. And it makes them think twice about saying anything. You take that and you combine it with how much everyone in the town loves Jack, how could they say anything? They were terrified because of potentially getting killed by Jack. And also their parents wouldn't believe them. And he's constantly reminding them, too, that nobody's going to believe them if they did say anything. It really reminds me of the movie Matilda. When Matilda's dad is saying, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm big, you're little, all of those things... That when a child hears, they're like, you're right. Who's going to believe me? That's a really good comparison. While Matilda's dad was telling her those things, she had the teacher to protect her. She had the teacher that she went and trusted and ended up rescuing her. While these boys didn't have a Miss Honey to help them. Let's talk a little bit about the guns that Jack had. Heath has said before that when he would go to the Knoxes, Jack lived next door 
and their families were all friends. So he would go over there and he'd always be a little bit excited. This is before Scouts. He'd be a little bit excited because he knew how much everyone loved Jack in the town. Jack was like their uncle. Like People called him Uncle Jack. And he always just had that special soft spot for the boys and they always felt just real loved. And so Heath had talked about how when he would go to the Knoxes, he would look over and see, is Jack home? Is Jack out in his garage? Is he working with guns? And the type of guns he had, he had any type you could imagine. He had everything from Civil War guns to modern day sniper rifles. So can you imagine being a young boy who sees all that kind of stuff and it's coming from this guy that people call Uncle Jack? I'm sure that any boy who walked into that garage or shed was just in awe of everything that not only Jack was showing them, but letting them handle. Building that trust. He also would say things sometimes with the underlying goal of intimidation to the boys. We discussed Vietnam and Jack's experiences that he would tell the boys about in in a previous episode. He would also tell the boys that he liked the smell of burning flesh. And he remembered that smell from being in Vietnam. And to tell boys that you've got these guns, you've got sniper rifles, you're telling kids that you like the smell of burning flesh. I could imagine that would scare any child. Jack sometimes grabbed people, you know, uh, he would uh, demonstrate some of his uh, hand-to-hand combat moves or use his uh, senior ring to peck somebody in the chest or, you know, maybe put put somebody's arm around uh, behind them. Talked about Vietnam, loving the smell of uh, burning flesh. You know, very, very, he was very good at verbal intimidation. You know, saying something without saying it can have a double meaning. And on top of that, like we mentioned in a previous episode where he's having them dig their own graves, along with telling them that kind of stuff to intimidate them and scare them into submission and cooperation, along with threatening the lives of their families. And during all that, while it may seem horrific to the boys even at that point, they still feel special. They're still one of Jack's boys. They're still part of the group, one of his chosen ones. So it might be a little give and take for them. You know, this this part of the whole deal sucks, but I have that love that I need. I have that acceptance, that sense of belonging that I've craved my entire life. And while Jack is telling the boys about all of his experiences while he was in Vietnam, he's also using tactics that he learned in the military on them, like mind control. The process of breaking them down, building them back up. It's almost like he had to try to destroy the person that they were so he could create what he wanted. And I think that tactic worked especially well on Heath. I would agree with that, especially because so many people that we talked to, including Heath himself, have said that Jack was training him to be an assassin. Kelly Cunningham Gills. So how do you know Heath? I actually met him in a class we had together at Henderson State University in Arkadelphia. He told me about being in Scouts. He told me about playing football, about his sister and her pageants and... Um, He told me he had a really strict dad. Do you remember him telling me that? (laughs) He told me about his scout troop leader and how he um, was training him to be an assassin, which I thought, you know, whatever. (laughs) Did you believe him? 
I, I mean, I didn't not believe him, but I didn't put much into it. I thought, he couldn't do anything like that. You know, he's too nice of a guy. There's no way, you know, maybe he's teaching him how to use guns, whatever. I mean, scouts, I would kind of expect something like that. But, but yeah, he was telling me how um, Jack was telling him, you know, certain people would be, you'd, you'd make more money on certain people, you know, like heads of state, presidents, you know, famous people, like that people hire people to be assassins. And I thought, okay, whatever. So I didn't put much into it. Um, I mean, he told me, and I just, that's crazy. And <laughs> it was that was kind of it. I mean, we didn't talk about that anymore. But that came to my mind um, soon after he was arrested. And sure. um, I told the, the officers that I talked to, and they didn't really seem to want to know anything about that or think it was involved or related or anything like that. So when you first hear that, that a grown man a scout leader, is training a young boy to be an assassin, it seems a little ridiculous at first. If you're hearing it out of context, I would imagine it's not something you're going to take very seriously, especially if it's a scout master, you're probably just thinking hunting-wise or something like that. But that was something that Heath did tell multiple people that Jack was training him to be an assassin. He was conditioning him. He was the, he was the star. Heath was the the star pupil of, 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 I thought, first it was fantastical when Heath was talking about that Jack was training him to become an assassin. I was like, well, come on. And, uh, but then it started falling into place if, in fact, Jack was needing protection. Something that I just thought of from Bonnie's interview when she talks about Heath being 142% boy, he was just so into all of that kind of stuff that Jack was showing him, like hunting and fishing, and he just really enjoyed everything that the scouts had to offer, and he wanted to learn all of it, everything that he could, and I think that's really another reason that he was right by Jack's side. And so many people have said he was Jack's favorite. He was Jack's boy, his finest creation. And so to feel loved and worthy and be Jack's right-hand guy, he had to feel pretty special about himself. And a lot of the other boys in the group even say that, that Heath was Jack's finest creation, and they knew that he was special to Jack. And later, one of the worst victims. In a previous episode, we had mentioned how Heath had been involved in school activities, football, homecoming king. And while he appeared to be really outgoing in these situations, he was really trying to fit in. He was trying to fit into a group of peers his own age in a normal situation. He fit into Jack's boys, but he also really wanted to fit in and just be normal. He wanted to feel worthy of being liked, and so he was very meticulous with his appearance. He was meticulous with what he was involved in, sports, the people he hung around with. He wanted to make sure that he was a part of these groups in high school because if he could offer something to these people and they liked him, he felt like he couldn't be all bad then. He wanted to be worthy of being liked. Looking for that validation. And I can remember 
thinking, I want to pay attention to the things that I can change. I want people to focus on this. You know, I want people to, to like me. You know, I worked out and I tried to dress nice. And, you know, at school, I tried to wear all the popular brands, the polo and the hill figure and the guess. And I played sports. I want to be identified with the sports. I want to be identified with the preppies because, you know, uh, those are the people that everybody wants to be a part of and like and so I think that I tried very hard to be identified with certain groups to offer some kind of meaning that made me feel something better about myself if they were willing to accept me then I couldn't be all bad you know after I got uh, put in prison you know um hearing the family come down and visit and talk about people saying, you know, they couldn't believe everything that happened, that I was such a, uh, a nice guy and so, and, and very polite and uh, handsome and all these things. And I can remember looking at And then there were other people who said that I was arrogant and that I didn't talk to people. And I was trying to tell my family, I said, well, you know, I tried very hard to, to look the way dad wanted me to look and to study and, and to pass at school. I said, but also, I didn't believe in any positive attention that I got because I didn't see that because I didn't believe it, you know? And so it wasn't that I was arrogant. It was that, you know, I, I didn't know what to say. You know, I didn't have the social skills to be able to, to interact with people. And I was so consumed mentally with, all these other things that were happening behind the scenes. You mentioned how he was involved in a lot of school activities. He was also involved in a lot of activities outside of school. He was in the choir. He sang at church. They both took dance lessons, took music lessons, him and Heather. Heather played the guitar. Heath played the violin. One of Heath's instructors took advantage of him as well. When he was 13 years old, this woman had sex with him. And that's how he lost his virginity. And so the abuse is coming from all directions. His head must have been spinning at this point because you lose your virginity to an older woman. They have these older women coming out to these parties. He has Jack sexually abusing him. He was very used by all these people. The whole idea that, you know, was hooked up with the teacher and this and that. And quote, Mr. and all that stuff. It's just like, how could this all go on and nobody care enough to try to do anything about it? His head was like a washing machine that couldn't get turned off over and over and over the same thing. Might as well put a pillowcase over his head and say, Heath, go figure out what you want to do. I'm pretty sure he couldn't see much other than Jack Walls. He, he lived Jack Walls. And I think he played a game a lot of times with what he thought that everybody else thought he should be. But like we've said so many times, he didn't realize it at the time because that double standard where everybody thinks that women can't abuse boys, that it's always a man abusing a a young girl. But it does happen. And it happened to Heath. And I'm not quite sure why people turn blind eyes, but it does seem that they do. In certain situations. And so the instructor that took his virginity, the crazy thing about that is that was another situation where multiple people knew about it. 
they saw his car at her house overnight from time to time. His parents knew about it. They did not approve at all, but they knew. And so when you have multiple people knowing this and no one does anything about it. And that right there shows how long that situation went on as well. Because like I said, it started when he was 13. If people in town are seeing his car at her house, it was going on for years. And it also just shows there too how people turned blind eyes to abuse in the town, which is just sickening. What's around this time... Heath is in high school, the situation with the Hogans is taking place, and Heath does start dating a girl his own age. And he really likes her. She's even in some of the family videos that we've seen. I've talked to him about this girl, and he had said how much he liked her, how he wanted to date her. A lot of the guys wanted to date her. And so she finally agreed to go out with him. And they started being boyfriend-girlfriend in high school together. That didn't sit well with Jack. Not at all. Heath is telling Jack, I really like this girl. I'm developing feelings for her. And like you said, Jack was not having that. And so he had to do everything he could to end it. So he tells Heath, don't trust her. She is going to break your heart. Which unfortunately she does end up doing. She breaks Heath's heart. And that just further solidifies and validates that Jack is always right. It was like a, and I told you so moment for Jack. When you said that, it made me think back to when we talked about Heath being trained to be an assassin by Jack. And one thing he told him, don't develop emotional attachments. Don't do it. And that right there was something too that also kind of fed into it. You develop this emotional attachment with this girl, you're going to get hurt. Don't develop them. Just be an assassin. Then you won't get your heart broke. I mentioned the Hogans just now, and I wanted to kind of talk about that situation just a little bit more because as this situation is happening, of course, Heath is somebody that Jack taps to come to his defense and terrorize the Hogans. We also talked about in the last episode how Jack would use tactics to pit the boys against Doug by telling them things like Doug was going around town saying that they were all gay and that anybody who supports Jack is gay. And not only that, he would tell them that Doug was saying that their sisters were whores. And we talked pretty extensively about Heath and Heather's relationship. So that was really all Heath needed to hear because he was going to stick up for his sister. And not let anybody talk bad about her or call her a whore, anything like that. He wanted to protect her and he wanted to protect her reputation. We've mentioned a lot how close Heath and Heather were. And so many people that we've interviewed and talked to, including his aunts, have said how close the two of them were, how she just helped him. And, you know, he looked up to her even though she was younger and He was not about to let anyone say anything bad about her. He put her on a pedestal. And so in Heath's mind right now, he's got these two people that he loves that need protection. He's got Jack on one hand and Jack is telling Heath, you've got to defend me here because if you don't, they're going to take me away from you. And then he's got Heather on the other hand where he's wanting to defend her honor. And this is where that assassin training comes in that we've been talking about. And when you hear somebody say that they're training somebody to be an assassin, it's easy to write something like that off. 
When you step back and take a look at this case as a whole, it becomes a much bigger deal. For instance, when you're looking at what happened with the Hogans, it becomes clear that Jack was building this militia and training these boys to defend him, and it becomes much more sinister. It's so incredibly dark to hear that. And just imagine being someone that's friends with Heath at that time, and he tells you, hey, I'm being trained to be an assassin. That is hard to even wrap your mind around. Yeah, I think it's very easy to write off because, like you said, it's hard to believe. And you don't really know how serious to take it. Right, because they're, he's been in the Boy Scouts his whole life. Eagle Scout, been trained on guns. Jack works at Remington. It's like, really? Are you? Uh, yeah, really. I just really think that if I heard somebody say that, I, I would honestly be like, are you guys playing army? Like, why, why would this be going on? Well, it appears to be unbelievable and just you can't even wrap your mind around it. Nobody believed it until it was too late. So after the Hogan trial, Jack is kicked out of the Boy Scouts. He still can't be a scout leader. That doesn't stop him, though. He still participates in scout activities, campouts, and especially the big one that was coming up, which was referred to as Philmont. If you're not familiar with Philmont, it is the all-encompassing Boy Scout experience. It's a pretty big deal. According to the Boy Scouts website, it says... In addition to providing an unforgettable adventure and backpacking across miles of rugged rocky trails, Philmont Scout Ranch offers programs that feature the best of the Old West. Horseback riding, burrow packing, gold panning, chuck wagon dinners, and interpretive history, with exciting challenges for today such as rock climbing, mountain biking, and sport shooting. It's an unbeatable recipe for fast-paced fun in the outdoors. Two weeks will cost you about $3,000. So Jack had already signed up to go to Philmont as their leader and had spent that money and he still wanted to go. Even though he was kicked out because of the Hogans, he still wanted to go. So Pam goes over to the Stocks house and says, hey, can Jack go and use Joe's name? Can he go and just pretend to be Joe? And that's one thing that Joe fully understood was not wanting to be out that money, not waste money in any way. So I think that played a really large role in the Stocks family agreeing to let Jack go in their place. And Joe fully understood what Jack had been charged with and that Jack had been kicked out of the Boy Scouts, literally kicked out. And he said, sure, go ahead and pretend like you're Joe Stocks. So off Jack goes to Philmont under the name of Joe Stocks. And not only is he there acting as Joe Stocks, but Barbara's there, Heather's there, and Heath is there. Which is so crazy when you think about it a little bit, because also everybody who went on that trip with them knows that Jack is not Joe. So not only is the Stocks family going along with it, several other people there are as well. The Boy Scout leaders that had national conferences and Jack Walls goes as He's Stock's father. And the people in Lone Oak knew that, knew that he's masquerading, lying about who he is. And they let that happen. And I know we continually say this, but it shows the level of control that Jack had over not just the boys, but these adults, too. Because if you think about it, someone who had been kicked out of the Boy Scouts, even for allegedly assaulting a young boy. It just blows my mind that parents would say, "Okay, yeah, use a fake name. Come on around our sons just a little bit more. 
It wasn't a secret. Everybody was in on it. Everybody knew that Jack wasn't Joe. Everybody knew that Jack was using Joe's name to gain access to this camping trip that he wasn't supposed to be on. Heath also told us how he didn't want to go to Philmont that year. And he tried not to. He tried to get out of it. His dad said, absolutely not. It has been paid for. You're going. Jack's going. We are not wasting the money. And you need to go because it's what you do as a scout. And Jack's your scout leader. Although he's not going under the correct name, but he's going. And so you need to be there. And Heath also tried to quit scouts on multiple occasions. And his parents said, no, you're not quitting the scouts. Because I think in their mind, if he quit the scouts, then he's not going to be around Jack, who they're still counting on to mold him, who they're still wanting to mold into this perfect young man. Whereas Heath is trying to get away from Jack. Because to him, staying in the scouts just continues the abuse. He'd say, I love you. Your parents don't. This was part of his spiel was, and he stocks was his finest creation, you know, but I love you. I'll take care of you. They won't. At this point, Heath is graduating high school and moving away to college. We'll cover his college experience in the next episode, as well as discuss what happens when Heath tries to break free of Jack. How will Jack react when Heath falls in love for the first time? What happens when Heath confides his darkest secret to his mom and sister? Will Heath finally be able to break the control that Jack holds over him? What will Jack do when his finest creation becomes his biggest problem. Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case, never before seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.